live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 9, The Mysterious Mini-Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curious curator of the vault, Nathan Marjan. The new year got off to a great start as the conquest continued with our discussion of Dino De Laurentiis' King Kong with writer-podcaster Ben Avery. This week is our first mini-sode of 2020, which is yet another mini-analysis of a Toho classic covered by Brian Scherschel after I left our podcast, Kaiju Vision Radio. See the link in the show notes for that KVR episode. It's a film that I researched as part of my independent study on Ashura Honda in grad school. We'll cap off this mini-sode with some listener feedback looking back on the previous year's episodes. Hindsight is 2020. You've been waiting all month to make that joke, haven't you? I approve! Anyway, today I'll be analyzing one of the most popular and influential Toho films from the 1950s. One that, arguably, ushered in the golden age of the studio science fiction and fantasy films. The 1957 tokusatsu classic, The Mysterians. Yes, Jimmy, I know you love it. You've only mentioned that for, uh, I don't know how many episodes. It was two, but who's counting? Ugh. Regardless, this is a film of many firsts. It was the first tokusatsu film with Tohoscope, Toho's version of Cinemascope, Toho's first alien invasion film, featuring the studio's first alien race, and Toho's first film to feature a mecha, or giant robot. Yes, Jimmy, I remember you saying it was the first of a pseudo-trilogy in the last episode. That's because it has, as Ben Avery, the guest host of that episode, would say, weak connections to both 1959's Battle in Outer Space and 1977's The War in Space. So that's why you love it. You love this film because of the science, too, huh? That's interesting because while Honda had high respect for scientists, he was concerned about their ethics and egos. He said, quote, At the time I feared the danger of science, that whoever controlled it would take over the entire Earth. If a scientist possessed that kind of knowledge and was left to his own devices, it could be the end of the world. Bragging about your humility? Oh, the irony. Getting back to the film. The dying survivors of the asteroid world Mysteroid come to Earth to acquire land and to intermarry with human women to propagate their species. But as time goes on, it becomes apparent the alien's goal is to, that's right, take over the world. Of course! Jimmy, what'd I tell you about letting M. Bison on the show? Get that psychopowered dictator off the island before he gets crazy ideas about weaponizing kaiju or something. Sheesh. As I was saying, humanity comes together to fight back, and while one human scientist, played by the great Akihiko Harada, sides with the Mysterians, his loyalties are divided as he watches them impose their will and increase their demands. While this is a distinctly Japanese film, it draws inspiration from American sci-fi cinema like 1953's The War of the Worlds, 1956's Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and 1956's Forbidden Planet. The first is a cinematic 
and literary classic of Alien Invasion. The second is noteworthy for its Ray Harryhausen stop-motion special effects. The third is a masterpiece of the genre with opulent and ambitious set design and costumes. Their fingerprints are all over the Mysterians. If by chance you haven't seen those other films, you poor deprived child. Do yourself a favor and amend this quickly. You'll thank me later. While this film certainly expresses Honda's humanistic faith in science, I'll be focusing on a different topic more closely connected to the Japanese national spirit. Much to my intrepid producer's chagrin. You started Jimmy's nose to fill in my gaps? <sighs> Moving on. The Mysterious was released in Japan December 28, 1957, one year after Japan became the 80th member of the United Nations on December 18, 1956, and it shows. Japan saw the UN as an organization that embodied its newfound ideal of pacifism and as a guarantor of its neutrality on the international scene. Although... Some believe joining was meant to mask the country's post-World War II dependence on the U.S. As Steve Rifle and Ed Godachewski wrote in Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film, quote, Some events in the Mysterians reflect the country's real-life return to world politics. Japanese leaders had coveted a U.N. seat since signing the 1951 San Francisco Peace Treaty, which restored Japan's independence but left it politically isolated. Japan joined the U.N. with a pledge to become a force for world peace. To that end, it would spend a decade trying to convince the U.S. and USSR to end nuclear testing. Those efforts failed, but the Mysterians idolizes this newfound geopolitical influence. Japan leads the effort against the alien threat, bringing the Americans, who provide the heroic military assist, and the Soviets, with whom Japan had just normalized relations, to the table. In Hollywood prototypes such as When Worlds Collide, 1951, only Washington's allies are invited to international meetings. Honda's worldview is egalitarian. Honda said with this film, quote, I would like to wipe away the Cold War notion of East versus West and convey a simple, universal aspiration for peace, the coming together of all mankind as one to create a peaceful society, end quote. His idealism is embodied in several scenes where UN representatives gather in Japan as part of the Defense Force of Earth. The literal translation of the film's Japanese title is Earth Defense Force, by the way. No, Jimmy, other than the name, I doubt this has any connection to the video game series with future marines fighting giant extraterrestrial bugs and robots. Hmm. Um, anyway, the representatives gather to discuss how to respond to the Mysterians' demands and later how to combat them. Japan is at the forefront of each meeting and spearheads every operation against the alien invaders. This is exemplified in one pivotal scene where a Japanese military official addresses UN representatives with the aid of an interpreter who translates everything into English. While not every representative's country sign is easily visible, the ones that can be seen feature Japan's closest allies, the US, and several of its neighbors, USSR, India, China, Vietnam, and Thailand. Rifle and Godachewski point out in their Honda biography that, miraculously, the Americans and Soviets even put aside the Cold War to contribute to this international effort. As Honda said, quote, In every single international conference or meeting scene, I have everyone from their countries there, such as Russia, every time. And they all put their heads together with the scientists. This sort of thing is my theme, the basis of my work, end quote. In fact, in the scene where General Morita, played by Susumu Fujita, addresses the press, the Japanese flag is seen flapping between the U.S. and Soviet flags in the background, a symbol of how Japan has brought the superpowers together, and 
perhaps also how Japan often found itself caught between the nations during the Cold War, a sentiment explored in 1984's The Return of Godzilla. The Alpha and Beta aircraft fly for the World Air Force while proudly displaying the UN emblem on their stabilizers as yet another sign that the nations of the world have come together to fight the Mysterians. This unity is contrasted with the scientists meeting with the Mysterians, or as Peter H. Brothers puts it in Mushroom Clouds and Mushroom Men, quote, the first sit-down conference between aliens and humans in the history of motion pictures, end quote. The extraterrestrials established their base at Mount Fuji, which is itself an act of dominance since it is the tallest mountain in the country and has come to symbolize Japan and its culture. They tell of their tragic history, the world being destroyed by nuclear war, quote, when Earth was still in the Neolithic age, end quote, and how their genes have degraded to the point that 80% of their children are born with deformities. The leader says these children are disposed of, implying infanticide. This backstory was undoubtedly inspired by stories of atomic bomb survivors and the fears of radiation. They are a potent expression of a uniquely Japanese anti-nuclear sentiment. Nuclear weapons eventually lead to irreversible destruction. A quick aside, I love how the Mysterians have a color-based hierarchy like in the original Star Trek, except soldiers wear blue and only their leader wears orange. Perhaps Gene Roddenberry saw this film? In any case, the Mysterians asked for a two-mile radius of land as a new home and to intermarry with human women to improve their gene pool. This comes after they admit they launched their giant robot Mogura as a demonstration of their superior technology. Another quick aside, while the original Mogura here was added at the insistence of producer Tomoyuki Tanaka, it still serves a purpose in the story. The Heisei incarnation in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, though, is the most useless mech ever. Although, at least that one didn't beep constantly like a broken alarm clock. Listen to the KVR episode on that film for more details. I'm sure you would have done a better job building that mech, Jimmy. Wait, you have what's left of both of them in your garage as spare parts to rebuild Mechanicong? I don't know if that's terrifying or awesome. As I was saying, while the Mysterians promised peaceful cooperation, the Japanese scientists perhaps with fresh memories of World War II in mind, refused the aliens' request. This is disregarded by the Mysterians, who soon kidnap five women, including Etsuko, played by Yumi Shirakawa, and Hiroko, played by Momoko Kochi. Then, in what Brothers calls, quote, an apparent attempt to circumvent any earthbound bureaucracies by appealing directly to the public, end quote, the Mysterians fly their ships over a city to make a quote-unquote plea for peace, saying they do not want war but will fight if attacked. They say humans are animals and must be ruled by them. So they increase their land demands to a 75-mile radius. Hmm. Sounds like the island's board of directors. Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> the Mysterians are a nationalistic, colonialist race unwilling to set aside their self-interest for peaceful coexistence. The film's and Honda's idealism is reflected in Japan's real-life involvement with the UN. Since joining, Japan has been elected as a non-permanent member of the Security Council a record 11 times. Its first two-year term was in 1958, one year after the release of the Mysterians and only two years after joining the organization. Its most recent term was from 2016 to 2018 on the heels of the country's 60th anniversary of joining. The nation contributed billions of dollars to the UN's peacekeeping efforts, such as its operations during Desert Storm. However, it was not until the Diet passed a law in 1992 that allowed the Japanese self-defense forces to directly assist if certain conditions were met that they were able to participate without violating Article 9 of their constitution. 
As of 2017, they have partaken in 14 peacekeeping missions, five humanitarian relief operations, and nine election observation operations, as well as making in-kind contributions to 27 UN operations. While Prime Minister Shinzo Abe withdrew JSDF troops from the Sudan in 2017, he did so under the banner of quote-unquote proactive pacifism, which is an apt description of all of Japan's involvement with the UN and their conduct in this film. In 2000, Japan contributed 20.6% of the UN's budget, which was second only to the United States and exceeded the contributions made by the other four permanent Security Council members combined. However, since then, Japan's contributions have been surpassed by China's. In light of this history, the Mysterians acts as wish fulfillment for the Japanese. It was made and released during a time of high hopes for the country. It was the first of many steps the nation would take to re-enter the world community after the war. While other nations are present, Japan is front and center in its operations against the alien invaders. In this fictional crisis, the Japanese audience got to live a dream their nation has tried for six decades to make come true. Perhaps this is why Honda, in an interview just before his death, said he considered this one of his favorite films. And now, for some listener feedback. I mentioned before that we got our first five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I didn't bother reading them. I've shared them on social media. But to be honest, we got some more in, and I was so excited by them, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to share them anyway. Our first one comes to us from username Fried Raptor, which sounds kind of delicious. What? That's illegal, Jimmy? No. I guess I shouldn't be surprised considering our rival island attraction, Jurassic Park, has decided to outlaw such things because I guess raptors are a protected species now. Regardless, the title of this particular review is A Must Listen Podcast for Kaiju Lovers and G-Fans. It reads, Top-notch commentary and production. It is obvious that the host Nathan spends hours in research, which helps place the movies in context to the events and times of its production. The rotating guest hosts always give it a lively air. The icing on this delicious cake of a podcast is Jimmy. He is the driving force of the show and takes great care in keeping the commentators on track. Overall, this show is a joy to listen to. Oh, you love that one? Of course you do. Be a little careful there, Fried Raptor. You don't want to be inflating my intrepid producer's ego. Our next one comes to us from David L. Marshall. He is one of the co-hosts of the Kaiju Apostle podcast, which started at about the same time as us. I've been connecting with him over social media, and it's been great. I highly recommend you listen to his show. His friend Chris Worms is a wonderful co-host. They're a pair of seminarians who are going through the Godzilla series in chronological order and talking about a lot of the deeper meanings that are in each of these films in a very similar way that we're doing here. The title of this review is Keep It Going, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, even with the countless monster slash kaiju podcasts there are these days. Nathan's personality is engaging and charismatic without being annoying or aggressive. His insights when it comes to the history of the films, not to mention their moral and philosophical leanings, are second to none. He's been doing other films apart from the Godzilla movie since he's done that on other podcasts, but so far, the Kong episodes have been top-notch. Can't wait for more. Oh, so now you think David is inflating my ego? I guess it breaks even, right? (laughs) Thank you very much, David. I appreciate the kind words, but I have to say, as I mentioned earlier, your show is really insightful, too. 
I know that you and I have been connecting because one of the reasons that we love what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing is to illustrate to people that there is a lot more to these films than what they think. If you want to get a double dose of intellectual film appreciation, listen to The Kaiju Apostle, as well as our show. And then we have this one. This one, which was apparently so important to this user, he posted it twice under two different usernames, I might add. The first time was as Cathode Ray Phantom, which sounds like an engineer's name, to be honest. And then the second time as Yojimbo65, which tells me he's a Kurosawa fan. The title of this one is, If You're Not Careful, You Might Learn Something. And it goes like this. Having finally caught up to date on this podcast, I must say it is great. The humor and showmanship of the presentation is what sets the Monster Island Film Vault apart from many of the other Kaiju slash Toku podcasts. From a Robin Williams-esque opening to the banter between host Nathan Marchand and Jimmy from NASA, who is growing on me, the pacing is brisk but not frantic, and humor and jokes fly thick and fast. Listening to the show is just fun, but there is a lot of good information hiding under that sugarcoating of humor. The host does his homework, and every tokusatsu fan can learn something new. It isn't just someone spouting their opinions into the ether. In each episode, Nathan and Jimmy provide a concise summary of each film before diving into the discussion with a rotating cast of guest co-hosts. I often find myself wishing I was at the same table so I could join in on the conversation. Sometimes I forget and talk back to the podcast when someone asks a question. By the way, just to interject myself here really quick, I do the same thing. <laughs> Jimmy can vouch for that. Trust me, he overhears me <laughs> talking back to some of those podcasts while I'm working. Listening to the discussions of the films is a more than acceptable substitute. I appreciate the mix of experience levels and the guests as well. As someone who saw King Kong 33 back in the early 70s when I was a wee lad, it is a lot of fun to hear someone's reactions to the film upon seeing it for the first time. The more seasoned guests, John LeMay, Ben Avery, often offer insights I had never known or considered. King Kong 33 was the first score made specifically for a movie? Petrox equals Petrox? How did I miss that? The third section, the Toku topic, provides a spotlight on the real-world events that the film was either influenced by or reflects upon. Here is where a listener can pick up some interesting factoids that can enhance your enjoyment of, or at least explain the filmmaker's choices in a given film. In short, if it isn't too late for that, these updates from the Monster Island Film Vault are a treat. The episodes are fun without being silly, informative without being pedantic. It hits a sweet spot that should appeal to both those new to tokusatsu and those seasoned fans like myself. Give it a listen. Thank you so much, sir. <laughs> I know you said that you wish you could be sitting at the table and talking about these films with us, but I do hope that me reading your review is a good step toward possibly, maybe, I don't know, doing that in the future. I've got a lot of my guest hosts planned out for the rest of the season, but maybe sometime in the future I can find an opening and you know, add some new blood to my roster. And now on to our listener feedback emails. Our first one comes to us from Andrew Roebuck. He writes, Hi, Nathan and Jimmy. I must say I absolutely love the podcast so far. You both really go all in on exploring these films and aren't afraid to deal with more complex topics. I was especially happy with hearing your talk about Half Human and how you tackled the film's controversies openly and honestly. King Kong 76 was never my favorite interpretation of Kong. 
However, your episode has inspired me to dust off my old VHS tape and give it another chance. The added context of the oil crisis really helps to grow a greater appreciation for the film. Let's see if I can survive my rewatch of Kong 76 and King Kong Lives this weekend. Good luck to you, man. (laughs) Good luck to you. (laughs) Very excited to hear LeMay's take on the film as he is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. I can definitely agree with you there. I am going to be very curious to see what Mr. LeMay has to say on that film. He may have to keep me going as we watch it. Although, I will admit, the first time I did see the movie, this minor preview of the next episode, I did find myself liking it more than I expected I would, and that it wasn't quite as bad as people made it sound like it would be. But we'll get into that next episode. The kaiju podcast genre is really on a tear these days, and you guys are one of my favorites. Jimmy, you would be happy to know that I watched the famous documentary War in Space about your exploits, and I'm very glad to see you made it out alive. Uh, Yeah, that is right, Jimmy. He just wanted to let you know that even though a lot of people label that a documentary, it's actually more of a docudrama, although Jimmy only likes to remind people of that because next to Nick Adams, David Perrin, who played him in the movie, is one of his favorite actors. So he wants to make sure, like he always does with me on the show, that everyone gets their facts straight. But he does appreciate you saying that you're grateful that he made it out alive. Sometimes he's just as surprised that he made it out as everyone else seems to be now listening to the podcast. Andrew finishes up his letter by saying, Keep up your amazing work and make sure the monsters of the island are well taken care of. Sincerely, Andrew Roebuck from Scriptophobics.ca which, by the way, I did check out his website. It's a nice little blog talking about all things tokusatsu, whether they be video games, television, whatever. I highly recommend checking it out. As for the care of the monsters, I seem to be projecting this idea that Jimmy and I are the only people here on the island, which was not intentional. <laughs> there are There's still a huge team of scientists and personnel and all that who care for the monsters. I'm just in charge of the film vault. So my job is kind of small by comparison to what everyone else here on the island is doing. And Jimmy, you know, as my producer, is in charge of maintaining the equipment and all that sort of stuff. Although you have some very interesting things going on in your spare time, I gotta say. Worries me a little bit. (laughs) But regardless, thank you for that vote of confidence, Andrew. Now, this next one is going to be interesting, to say the least. What I'm about to read will be excerpts from some email correspondences that I've been getting with another fellow creator. However, to read these, we need appropriate music. Hit it, Jimmy. J-Squad. So, these emails are from Eric Elliott, and his first reads, We'll be releasing the first issue of our fan project, Batman Meets Godzilla, in February. I would love to promote the project on your podcast. You can learn more at www.batmanmeetsgodzilla.com. Thanks. He sent me a second email that reads, Hey, Nathan, I enjoyed the latest episode of the podcast. I thought it was funny and really insightful. I wasn't expecting to get an education on Imperial Japan. He's talking about the episode on Half Human. After listening to the show, I thought maybe the best thing would be for you to do an on-air promo for the book. And then we kept writing back and forth, and I found out that what he is doing is him and some of his friends are putting together a fan-made comic book miniseries that is adapting what might be one of the most interesting lost films from John LeMay's Lost Tokusatsu Films book, which was, no joke, Batman Meets Godzilla. This was going to be an actual film 
Not only that, this was being made in the mid-60s, and it was going to be written by Sakazawa and feature the Adam West Batman. Yeah, that would have been weird and epic. Unfortunately, it fell through never got past the treatment and now these guys have done their homework for what i can tell because i've looked at some of their blog posts to see what they're doing and they have learned all that they can about the treatment they're not doing the treatment exactly because the treatment clearly knows more about japanese culture than batman so they've put a few more batman things in there but regardless they're putting this together and i am really excited to see this this is the sort of thing that I've talked about before, where with a lot of these lost projects, I brought this up with John when he was in episode five. Some of these ideas, I think, need to exist in one form or another, and he's doing it. And I can't wait to see what he and his friends put together. So in honor of that, I've talked with Eric and we have decided that we are going to do some giveaways for the next couple of months. I'm going to be promoting this project from now until March. And during that time frame, we are going to do a t-shirt giveaway. So everyone who shares the Twitter and Facebook posts for this episode will be entered in a drawing to win a t-shirt for this project from TeePublic. The giveaway will go for seven days after this episode is posted. I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to the TeePublic website and to his website and put the rules down. And then whoever wins, all you need to do is send me your shirt size, your mailing address, and the color that you want. Thanks for writing in, everyone. Would you like to join the conversation on the podcast? Send us your thoughts, comments, and disagreements on The Mysterians or any other film we've covered on the show. Listen to the credits for the contact info. On the next episode of the Monster Island Film Vault, I face my greatest challenge yet, watching King Kong Lives. Hoo boy! I'll be joined once again by kaiju scholar John LeMay, the only person I know who likes this movie. We'll see if he can convince me it's good. For next month's minisode, I'll be analyzing Honda's 1958 kaiju film, Varan the Unbelievable. Yes, Jimmy? The board president called to complain about the joke I made about the board of directors. He says they're not all that incompetent. Well, excuse me, president. Anyway, see you next time, listeners. Cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>